Hello and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels, the art and culture of running an indie record label. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thank you so much for carving out a few minutes of your day to listen in. And today is a special uh, episode. It's another one in our Industry Insider series where we take a little break from chatting with actual record labels. And instead, we talk with people who uh, work uh, in and around record labels um, to help serve them and and um, to kind of uh, work together with us. And so it, today we're talking about A&R and the art of A&R and is A&R an art form? And uh, I'm really excited to get to that. If you haven't already, if you're new to the show, um, a couple of months ago, back in the summer, I put together this document, which is a free guide, basically distilling a lot of the advice and, and um, great wisdom that we've received over the past couple of years on these episodes. So I've distilled some of that. So if you're in the, the process of thinking about starting a record label, or if you're a independent DIY musician, um, or if you are currently running a record label, I think you'll find this really helpful and you can download it for free at otherrecordlabels.com. Today's guest is Tyler Onderry and he is um, a, kind of a, a freelance um, independent um, consultant in the music industry and he works with a lot of artists at various stages in their career to help them along and to, to offer advice and we talk about that a little bit but he also works with Father Daughter Records and and we had the chance to interview Jesse of Father Daughter Records about a year ago so you can go back and listen to that when you get a chance. Um, he works with them doing A&R. He and I connected and, and I've been following him on Twitter. He's, he's uh, very funny and offers a lot of great insights into the industry and uh, I had reached out to him and we had we had talked about potentially uh, doing an episode and and we kind of thought about the idea of A&R because that's something that he specializes in and is really passionate in. I thought it was interesting because it's something that is um, so attached and affiliated with record labels, but it's something that a lot of us don't understand or a lot of us don't really spend too much time thinking about how we discover artists, where we discover artists from, uh, what that might look like from our standpoint and from the artist standpoint. And Tyler has some really incredible insights into this, and it was exciting to kind of unpackage this concept of A&R. Well, this is exciting to to chat with you. Um, I, I've been working last night on some of the questions and again this morning, and uh, I feel like this is such an interesting topic that I've never really thought about too much. I mean, even though it's like, you know, a, a huge, um, critical pillar in, in, in our field, it's, it's actually something that I haven't really identified or thought about too much. So I'm excited to chat with you about it today. Yeah, me too. Me too. First of all, can you confirm that it means artist and repertoire? Yeah, that's definitely like the classic definition okay. of it. I think maybe some contemporary definitions you could say like artists plus relations or artist relations, but yeah, I artist always still define it as artist and repertoire. Yeah. Does that term still mean anything today or do those two things still define the role? I certainly think so. Mm. Um because I mean, yeah, even in the contemporary sense, I think the A&R does a lot more than just finding the artists and then bringing them to the label. They are sort of the point person for all the different assets that come together to make an album campaign, you know, whether it's music videos or 
press photos or the biography, mm. um, social media stuff. The A and R is the person who's kind of in charge of collecting all those things. Okay, and and uh, sort of acts as like a creative soundboard for the artist, um, in addition to the other team members. But yeah, I mm. still I still say it, it holds yeah. relevance. You know. When we were talking over email a few weeks ago about putting this episode together, you referred to this job as an art form. That really stuck with me because, I mean, I think I've taken for granted and it's always an afterthought and I can't say that I've ever tried to improve my ability in this area or to learn. Uh, Why do you view this as an art form? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't necessarily like strictly view it as an art form. I certainly do think there is an art okay, to okay. music discovery. Uh, and I think that any sort of like music industry job is kind of inherently creative, even if you're on the business side of thing, mm. the, the, the product that you're working with is, is a creative product. And so I generally think that the best and most interesting people who are working on the business side of things have an approach to it in a very like have like an an artful approach to whatever job they're doing so whether you're a publicist or a booking agent or a manager or a show promoter i do think that there should be some level of creativity and artfulness and and sort of yeah creative point of view that you're bringing to the job even though there might be parts of it that are that are just kind of like boring admin stuff all right um so so yeah, and certainly I think the the art of discovery is definitely a thing. Being able to to identify something early on uh, and see its potential, and then help that thing develop and reach a wider audience, I think is to me I can't help but interpret interpretate that as uh, uh, another form of expression, you know. Mm. Um, and I definitely take it very seriously and uh, try to put a lot of intention behind the way that I discover and come across and like navigate the, the world of, of independent music. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I, the, as you're talking, I th- I'm thinking about it and it is this beautiful thing of, of finding something that is there and exists, but being able to see what it might look like down the road. And it's very similar. I mean, in my mind, it's very similar to a a casting director or a location scout who can see something that is an everyday thing probably, but, but what it, what, uh, what it could turn into. Yeah, no, exactly. What makes someone good at it in your mind? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, to me, someone who is good at A and R is someone who has a really curious spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who uh, has really broad taste, even if they're someone who specializes in a certain genre. Um, I still think having really broad taste and being able to um, find the value in you know all the different many genres and subgenres of music uh definitely makes you a better listener and someone who is uh i don't know more prepared to engage thoughtfully with, mm. with different artists um i generally think it's someone who doesn't solely rely on data 
okay. are like hard evidence. Uh, there are certainly A and R folks, especially in the contemporary sense, who I think m- mostly use data or kind of need harder evidence uh, to sort of uh, show what moves they're going to make in terms of approaching an artist. Okay. Um, but I generally, the A and Rs that I respect the most are the ones who kind of work more from their gut and more from their heart and their intuition and uh, kind of follow that and let their own taste lead where they're going to go versus how many, you know, Spotify streams somebody has or uh, YouTube views on a video or something like that. And certainly those things are also just like additional context that can, can be valuable in your assessment of a new artist. And if you are trying to figure out if you're going to work with them, I certainly don't not look at some of the numbers and the data that's available, but, I don't make it the center of okay. my work. Um, and I think there's a lot of A&R folks who, um, I think A&R maybe had a moment pre-streaming where there was more, even at the major level, major label level, where there was more of like a, just your natural intuition and your own taste were kind of driving it. And now that there's all this data available, the the art of discovery and the art of kind of finding things based on your own taste and your own uh insights uh i don't think it's lost but i'm certainly trying to like recenter that type of uh way of doing the job you know mm. <clears throat> what what role does uh trends play in things because i i would wonder you know there'd be this temptation uh to to jump on a trend or to see a major artist do something and then know that there's going to be some copycats out there. And then there's also this thing of this challenge of trying to predict might be the next trend. I mean, what role does trends play in your mind? Uh, if at all. Yeah. I mean, I certainly pay attention to different trends in music or like different micro scenes or moments or things that are happening. Um, I'm fascinated by them, Mm. but they are also not the way they, they aren't the, the driving force for how I approach A&R. So I don't like see a trend happening and then think like, okay, I need to like find an artist that fits (laughs) into this thing that's happening. Yeah. I take note of it and, and it's sort of like, you know, when you're doing A&R, you're like a researcher on, or I believe that you are kind of doing research on the culture at wide. So paying attention to trends is is a part of that and seeing what is resonating with people at the time is is an, is important and I think can inform the way that you kind of navigate things. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't try to uh, follow trends uh, in in how they relate to artists, um, and I don't um, yeah put too much value on a trend. But I'm certainly like fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Different micro subgenres or things that pop up. Yeah, uh, I, I I think it's I think it's fascinating, and I think it's fine to just kind of have a not neutral, but a more like nuanced sort of take on it. Where it's like I'm not mad when things go viral or <laughs> when certain trends happen. I think the culture kind of does what it's going to do. But uh, yeah, they are not central to how I sort of navigate things. But I certainly think there are other A&R folks or other 
folks in the music industry who um, probably put a lot of value on on certain trends and try to, you know, match whatever thing is happening yeah, at the so moment. Sure. Um, and, you know, I don't really know if I have a, like, yeah, I guess I'm. I, I, that's not how I would do it, but I'm not necessarily like knocking someone else's hustle. Yeah, I don't no, really no, I have like it. a hard judgment on it, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely like not the way that I want to go about discovering artists and 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 doing A and R. But is so. there any is there any um, strength to trying to predict possibly something? I'll give you a, a stupid example, but I was thinking just last night I couldn't fall asleep, and I was thinking how uh, a few years ago there was these there was this trend of like eighties music, like Carly Rae. And there was these, these 80s synths that were coming back. And now mm-hmm. I, I've kind of seen things evolve into like the nineties grunge scene is a little bit back more like the cranberry sound. And so then I was just thinking, I'm like, I wonder if like early two thousands will have like is next. Like, what will that sound like? I don't even remember what that sound was the aughts, but totally. is there any, is there anything to that to think, what might people be interested in in a few years from now? No, definitely. That's a really interesting way to frame it. And I think, yeah, to, to riff on that, I would say like, I would say we're already in a moment where the early two thousands is being referenced, whether it be through, you know, the kind of, you know, TRL music video era of like rap and pop music or early two thousands indie rock um, I think all those things are now kind of ripe for for referencing, and especially the the next generation of kids, the the, the Gen Zers, who were born in the late '90s or early 2000s. For them, 2004 is it's a nostalgic period, um, <laughs> yeah. and and that's just kind of how it is. Yeah. And so I and I think that's I think that's great. I think it's fine, and I, it's certainly um, just kind of how it goes. But yeah, to to on the trend thing. Uh, I do think there is value to trying to not trying to predict, but being able to see that a wave of something is coming. And mm. I'm not going to give myself like a ton of credit here, but <laughs> I, I have kind of an example where, uh, you know, we we just put out a, a, a record on Father Daughter, which is the label I work for. Um, this artist named Esther Rose, okay. who's this country um, artist who's based in New Orleans, okay. and um, Father Daughter had never put out like an explicit country record before. Um, and Esther was an artist that I brought to the label. And um, part of my pitch was that I could sense that there was kind of a country thing that was about to happen. I've been a country music fan for the last like five or six years. I didn't grow up with the genre, but in the last five or six years, I've really gotten into it and, uh, both contemporary and older stuff. Okay. And I, one of the artists that I was really into, uh, kind of early on was, was Casey Musgraves right. like, on her, on her first album back in 2013, I believe wow. 2014, maybe. Um, and certainly at that point she was getting some like indie critical claim, like in very small doses, there were m- more, folks who weren't country fans were kind of starting to catch on to Casey Musgraves, but I was like die hard Casey for, for the first two albums. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously yeah. last year she put out one of the most critically acclaimed albums Absolutely. of the year and really had a crossover moment. And now you bring up Casey Musgraves in a circle of 
in, you know, indie rock heads and they're either familiar or, or, you know, probably pretty big fans. Of totally. Hers. Um, and you know, certainly in this whole year, we've been seeing kind of a yeehaw moment with little Nas <laughs> X and Solange's album campaign was all in reference to like Houston, black cowboys and black huh. cowboy culture. And there's been a, there's been a, uh, a reclaiming of country and Southern music and a repositioning of what country can mean. Right. Um, Little Nas X represents, you know, he's a black queer guy who is making country rap music. And uh, there's less of a stigma around being someone who's maybe not raised on country or isn't interested in other genres of music. There's less of a stigma of like, Hey, I also like country music and, and it's starting to get a more just wider mainstream appeal. And part of my pitch to father daughter was like, I see this thing coming. <laughs> and I don't necessarily, I'm not trying to say that we want to like capitalize on that moment. But yeah. part of it was part of the hesitation. Maybe at first when I was bringing Esther to the table was like, well, we've never put out a country record. Like, how's that going to look like? How's that going to be perceived? Um, will we be? Will we know how to market this record? It's not really in our wheelhouse. And my argument was like, yo, I think the the listenership is actually broadened out quite a bit mm. in terms of country music and indie rock fans are 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 ready to, you know, not just indie rock fans, indie music fans in general, people who are into experimental music, are intro have really broad tastes now and you're talking about a generation of people who are mostly if not all raised on the internet and so their tastes are just way more blurred than the generations that came before them right and so being into rap music and into electronic music and into country is just not that big of a deal in 2019 it's not regional anymore Right, right. And so that's an example of like, not me trying to like get on a trend, but kind of like sniffing out that like, I feel like there's something coming. And, you know, the Esther record has done really well. And it's been received really well by both people who are loyal to father daughter. And it also has brought in new listeners that we've kind of never had before. Sure. So and so um, you got kind of lucky that, I mean, obviously, this would have been in the works. Um, but you got kind of lucky that Golden Hour blew up and and then this kind of came around that time? Yeah, I think both like Golden Hour and Little Nas X are like kind of the pillars of country having its crossover and getting blurred up and getting shaken up. Uh, And yeah, you know, it was just kind of nice to be like, oh, we're, we're, we're putting out a country record in the year where everybody... Uh, is suddenly kind of into country music and and people who weren't into country music are getting more curious about it. Yeah. Uh, and it that felt kind of nice to be like, yeah, we're we're putting out our first country record and and it's it's yeehaw season. <laughs> it, it's interesting. I don't want to make this about Casey Musgraves, but um I it is an interesting record and I wonder if somebody could write a good piece on it or a good book on it. But not only is it a fantastic album and and really great songs and great production, but it it there are some interesting um sociological things with it where she was a a much her political views were a lot different than the average um country music fan or or that you would hear on country radio and and then at the same time bringing in these indie people to listen to country radio that maybe 
wouldn't have ever. And, and you know, that's what you said. But I, I think that's a really interesting story around that record. No, totally. Yeah. She's really just, she's a fascinating artist. And yeah, she was kind of like sh- shut out of the mainstream country radio world, but then kind of uh, really uh, celebrated uh, in a in a more indie and experimental context. There were like, you know, critics who normally didn't write about country music who were like, we really love this Casey record. Um, and so, yeah, she, and so, and so, and and then, and then the country music industry, I think are now trying to like celebrate her. They're trying to catch up on that celebration, right? Like she's kind of been like a niche thing for the last couple of years and then had this like crossover explosion. And then the country music industry is like, wow, we haven't had an artist who's been able to straddle both worlds in a while. And now they're trying to kind of catch up to, to uh interesting to the the celebration that was happening elsewhere so yeah she's definitely just like a she she she's she shook up the the country music landscape in a big way and also and i think yeah just got a lot of people thinking about country music in a different way so um as much as i don't care about the grammys uh i always kind of keep an eye on who wins album of the year and whenever it's an album that i really enjoyed you know, like uh, like uh, the Arcade Fire record a few years ago, and and Casey Musgraves, I find it to be like a little bit of a win, and uh, no, so I was definitely. so happy when when that record won. I was super stoked when it won. Yeah, it's it's nice. You know, those those institutions are obviously, uh, you know, there's it's a whole can of worms. But yeah. I uh, but yeah, it's certainly nice to have a record that, uh, you know, really did do something interesting and meant a lot to a lot of people totally. actually get its proper recognition. Totally. So, yeah. Uh, going back to A&R, there's this rare uh, equilibrium. I want to get your opinion on this. Uh, where uh, I look for, when, I, when I'm when i doing these late night uh, band camp, deep dives, wormholes, basically I look for this undiscovered artist who has a fantastic sound, um, has a little bit of a following, but not too big where they don't need me, you know what I mean? Or they don't need my label. It, it's this weird fine line that makes it really hard to, to find the, the perfect artist. Is this just me or is this like my neurosis or is this a, a real thing? No, yeah, I completely relate to that. I think, uh, yeah, especially with the, in the age of the internet, uh, artists can kind of get started and get a following and Mm -hmm. get a thing going in so many different ways. And so trying to gauge on, yeah, does this artist actually need my support or the label support or do they already kind of have their own thing going is definitely a question I'm always asking. And um, yeah, I mean, you kind of really don't find out until you start to talk to the artists and kind of get a one-on-one with them and kind of figure out what their goals are. But certainly there are, there are things that I come across where I'm like, oh, like, man, I'm like the first one on this. This is great. And then I like look a little bit deeper and it's like already got a kind of scene or community around it. And it's like, "Hmm, well, maybe I'm too late. And it's, it's crazy because this is, this artist still, it like, it still feels very infantile, but like things just move so much faster now that like (laughs) something that may appear infantile to you is like in another world already, like, you know, just like really moving um so <laughs> so, so yeah i think it's it's definitely something that like every a and r person is trying to figure out and uh you know trying to uh, uh get artists to understand 
the value of an independent record label uh, and why you should maybe sign with one, um, you know, is is its own challenge when you're doing A and R. Um, and you know, because every label is different, and the history of record labels, uh, <laughs> I think people have you know a a a, a a view of record labels that, you know, in some cases aren't, they aren't wrong when they say that there's a lot of sketchy shit, but there's also, yeah. you know, uh, a, a, a community of labels who are trying to do things in a more ethical way. And I think I'm always trying to sort of, uh, uh, highlight those, those labels and, and, and try to explain to artists that there is still value in, in joining a label family. So, so Yeah. It, are you completely scared off if you see some artists that you've never heard of, but they have 2 million monthly listeners on Spotify? Um, I, yeah, I'm not generally scared off, but it's definitely, you definitely can kind of sense when like, okay, this is a thing that's like still developing and no one really knows about it, but like certainly other A&Rs know about it. Right. Like you can, you can kind of get the sense where it's like, okay, like this is definitely probably already getting passed around yeah, and there's yeah. a couple of different eyes on it. Uh, yeah. I'm generally like, I'm like, uh, again, like the streaming data and numbers and stuff, like it's definitely something that I is, it's secondary to me, but I, I do pay attention to it on some level, but generally, yeah, like I'm trying to find artists who like, don't have a thousand even a thousand followers you know what mm. i mean like i want to find the artists who are like got a couple hundred plays on a track sure. like to me that's the most interesting point to, to start agreed certainly there are some artists that i've that i've come across that had already you know had a little bit of traction um and and we were still able to to, to work together and, and that's great but i'm i'm certainly most interested in the stuff that's like really really kind of beneath the surface um but yeah i mean but also there are some artists who like yeah maybe have like a hundred thousand streams on the song but still don't quite know where to go next and like that's where that's an r or a good label can kind of help uh give them some guidance on how to sustain that or or kind of you know where where to go next with that so there was so a- it is it isn't always a, a, a disqualifier Totally. There was this story that we had here on the show with Sean from 6131 Records. I've made reference to it a few times, but um, that has uh, kind of spooked me or like changed my view where he like at some point he discovered Julian Baker's um, sprained ankle EP on Bandcamp like over the Christmas holidays. She had just released it herself in December and it was pretty unheard of. And then they ended up reaching out to her and, and then the rest is history. But like that story to me has like forced me into a lot of like late night wormholes on Bandcamp looking for that one record, you know? Oh no, totally. Yeah. I mean, I am in the depths of Bandcamp and SoundCloud and YouTube almost, I mean, I dedicate, I try to dedicate at least two hours a day to just wow. digging around. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah, you. that's, that's the only yeah, I mean that's the only way you can with with how fast things are moving. Uh, the only way to try to stay ahead of it is to to devote uh, uh, some serious time to it. And you know, and again, I'm someone who's really interested in getting in at that early level. There's a lot of A and R's, other A and R people who 
are totally fine with waiting for it to just kind of rise to the top and have the uh, press and oh, certain okay. people tell them when to move in, you know? Yeah. Um, and usually those are the people who like have more resources, sure. have are working at labels that have more money. And so they can, they can kind of wait for an artist to kind of blow up and do their thing. And then they can come in and throw a bunch of money at them where it's like, you know, I'm at a mid-sized indie label. We've got a certain amount of resources, but we don't have a ton of fancy things to flash at you. Mm-hmm. So part of what you, you're going to get is our enthusiasm early on, you know? Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I'm always trying to get there really early and, and digging on Bandcamp and SoundCloud is one of the uh, main ways you can kind of come across really exciting and new, interesting art. So my experience with A&R is basically just wait for one of my friends to recommend a new artist or, uh, like, or sift through email submissions, uh, or these like, uh, wormholes that we're talking about. Is there anything wrong with that strategy? I mean, speaking to our labels and our listeners right now, what should we be doing better in this role? Yeah. I Aside mean, I from think hiring it's totally- you. um yeah i mean i think it's totally fine to do the things that you're doing as well like i also sift through the demo submissions that i get um i definitely think there's a lot of value in word of mouth um esther rose for example came from a friend just texting me about her Mm. He he had moved to new orleans recently and was like i just saw this artist so that came through a word of mouth connection um uh yeah and i think you know going to shows there's an artist that we recently put out uh her her debut ep this artist named christelle beaufalet who i came across at a tiny like living room show uh at the end of last year so so there's tons of value in in broadening your a and r process and not just relying on you know the tools of the internet to, to kind of find new artists uh I I dig through Bandcamp and SoundCloud pretty deep because because it's fun and and uh-huh. because I and because I think there's a lot of really great stuff that's on there but it's certainly not the only way that I come across music and I think what we can be doing better as A&R folks is just putting more intention behind everything um so even if it's word of mouth or looking through your submissions putting more intention behind that, like Mm. paying closer attention to your friends when they recommend you something and not just being like, Oh yeah, I'll check it out. And then like it fades from your brain, like actually listening closely when someone's got an artist that they're recommending to you or really taking the time to go through your demo submissions for an hour or two to see if there's maybe something that's really special that's hiding Mm. back there. Um, Just doing everything with more intention. And I think also, not needing to rely so much on hard evidence. That's been like my thing. It's like, you don't need like someone, you know, it doesn't need to get on best new track or it doesn't need to be featured on some playlist or written about on a certain blog or co-signed by a popular artist for you to like make a move. I think there should be, I'm more interested in like, that's where the like art part of it comes for me. It's like, I want to know your expression too. Like I always say like your A&R process should have its own unique story and journey. That's kind of matching what the artist is bringing to you. Mm. Right. It's like, it, it shouldn't just be like, Oh yeah, I heard your song on a really popular playlist on Spotify. Like that's how I came (laughs) across it. It's like, 
Tom, man, like, what was your journey like? How'd you come across it? You heard it from a friend, and you went and looked it up, and then oh, you spent some time cool. with it, and then you took uh, took it on a bike ride. Like, to me, like that is all really important in how you're gonna approach artists and how you're going to convince the artist to work with you. It's like you should really be figuring out how to express your enthusiasm for a thing. And I think mm. a lot of A&R folks, I, I actually think there's like a stigma, there's a stigma around fandom in the music industry. There's this, there's this wanting to kind of appear really cool, <laughs> lurking in the shadows, standing in the back, and any sort of like, you know, any sort of like, a showing of like, oh, I'm actually just like a really big fan and I'm a, and I'm a nerd and I just really am a geek and I love this music. It sort of gets seen as like not cool or you look like you're thirsty or something. And to me, it's like, I want to celebrate that. Like I got into this because I'm a huge fan of music, not because I like want to be a cool record label executive in a suit, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm trying to encourage A&R people to like really uh, don't, be don't fear sort of hiding don't try to hide your fandom like don't try to hide the fact that you are you have a lot of enthusiasm behind this and 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 approach things with with more of a specific intention versus like kind of just having things passively come by you you know that is beautiful. That's the the highlight of the episode. I've 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 written that down. I really I really like that. I think it comes from, or the opposite of it comes from, like anytime you've seen an A and R rep or a label executive in a movie or a TV show, they're always some douchebag at the back of a bar pretending not to pay attention. Like right. that's always the the character. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely like a. I mean, I certainly notice it when I go to shows. Uh, because like, I'm the kind of person, even for the artists that are on father daughter, like if I'm coming to your show, like personally, I'm going to get up there in the front or as close as I can get. And I'm going to sing every word and I'm going to dance and move <laughs> and I'm going to meet people and enjoy it with the audience. And like, certainly there are some shows where maybe like, I'm not a huge fan of the band. And so I'll, I'll take my place in the back and just kind of observe. But if I'm a fan of the artist or if it's an artist I'm working with, yeah. I have no shame in like <laughs> getting in the crowd. And I think for artists, I think for certain industry folks or A&R people, even for the artists that they've been working with for years, there's this idea that like, Oh, let the, let the fans do their thing. And I'll just like stick in the back. It's like, no, those lines can be completely blurred. And like, we don't have to have this like, we're the music industry and, and y'all are the, like the audience or you're the fans. Sure. Um, we're all fans of music and that's, that should, that should, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's maybe a lot of people who aren't fans first in the music industry. <laughs> I that's, totally that's agree. A huge, that's a huge problem. I totally opinion, agree. And so. I, I love what you're saying. How, how did you get into this? And I mean, how do you find yourself in, in this niche of a niche? Yeah, it's kind of like a wild like or not wild but it's just like a pretty unpredictable i, I it, it was a, a yeah an unpredictable path i i was setting out to be an actor and a performer my whole life okay. i did theater in middle school and high school i from the dc area and then i moved to chicago to study theater in college was really set on being an actor and at the same time i was also a big music fan and was always 
interested in finding new music and got really into indie music when I was in high school and was kind of like the person in my group of friends who was always bringing new artists to the table. But I never thought of it as like something I could do for work. I was just kind of a hobbyist. I loved music Mm. and going to shows and stuff. But my main sort of path was I want to be an actor and I want to be in plays and I want to try to be on Broadway. So I went to college to study theater and just like wasn't really working out in the way that I had hoped. I wasn't really like connecting with the theater community that I uh, had kind of become a part of in Chicago and at the school that I was going to. And so during that time that I was kind of having a falling out with theater, I was getting really into to music blogs and mm. to kind of music journalism in general. And I had grown up like being a huge music fan, but never really like read about music. I definitely like read Pitchfork in high school, but I didn't really know that there was a world beyond that um, or beyond like the kind of bigger, glossier legacy magazines that you would see in like the grocery store or whatever. Um, and so, uh, yeah, around like 2009, 2010, I started coming across like a whole world of music blogs that were popping up on Tumblr and WordPress and uh i was just kind of fascinated by it and i started like uh following these blogs and 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 connecting with some of them and i was like maybe i should like start my own thing Hmm. uh this seems pretty accessible and like kind of a fun thing to do and yeah like i'll start my own blog and so i started a blog in 2010 and slowly kind of gained a like small but dedicated audience um and then from that blog, I met a bunch of other different bloggers, and we started this kind of larger publication that I still help run today called Portals. Right. And Portals uh, was like a big thing for me, and met I met so many different artists and other labels just from us covering them, and Father Daughter was a label that we were big fans of and that we were covering quite a bit, and Jesse was... Jesse Frick from Father Daughter was familiar with my work at my my first blog, uh, which is called Flashlight Tag, and then she was also familiar with my work at Portals. And then uh, around like mid mid twenty seventeen, I was kind of like over working my various day jobs and odd jobs, and really wanted to like take a crack at trying to work in the music industry. I'd like tried to make Portals a full time thing for a while, and just like wasn't really working out. Mm. It's really hard to 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 make uh, a niche music publication yeah. uh, uh, financially successful. Um, <laughs> and so I like was like, well, maybe I could like do A and R. Like that's that's always a thing that like like I had never really considered myself a writer or a journalist. And like the thing that I was like kind of feel like feel like I like had a knack for was was discovering artists and portals kind of built a reputation on being an incubator site where we were really early on a lot of artists who had taken off from like oh, cool. Mitski to Japanese breakfast, Vagabond, wow. soccer mommy. Those are all yeah. artists that we kind of like gave their first coverage. Um, or they did some of their first South by Southwest shows with us. Amazing. And so I was kind of like, well, maybe I can like take that skill set and that point of view to like, a label and I started like reaching out to some of my different friends who worked at labels and Jesse kind of heard through the grapevine that I was looking for an A&R job. And she was like, you know, we're actually like kind of finally in a position where we're, we're trying to hire like a solely A&R person. Uh, would you be interested in working with, with father daughter? 
And I was like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. that would be amazing. And we'd already kind of had a rapport um, just over the years through portals and blogging and stuff. And so, yeah, she offered me a job at the end of 2017 and I've been working for her since then. So it was pretty organic and, um, unexpected and like not what I thought I was going to be doing for most of my life, but there's still like a lot of things that I had like learned from the theater world that have crossed over into the, to the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. I think I just. I think it's the way that I carry myself in general. Like you, like when people find out that, that I used to do theater, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Because like, like, like I was saying, like I go to shows. I'm very expressive. I like to dance. I like to move. I, if you look at the world of music, like there's so many core, it's so many corollaries to the theater world. I mean, it's it's hmm. a production. You have yeah. lights. You have text. You have you know, the artist lineup is like the cast of characters. Uh, the A&R is like the casting director, like you kind of said earlier. There's there's lots of similarities between those two worlds. Um, and I think just the way that I carry myself as well, uh, I learned a lot about how to communicate with people and not be afraid to express myself mm. uh, in public, uh, in the theater world. And so I think that's kind of why I'm like not the typical industry person who's just like lurking in the background and wanting to keep it cool it's like i'm an ex-theater kid so i'm right (laughs) i'm gonna come here and like kind of make myself known um so yeah i don't know that's amazing i i think any any kind of uh um individual i I, like like we said at the beginning i think bands are weary of of label people and uh so i think if you can make them feel comfortable right just at the show and right in the moment um, I think that's a special thing. Yeah, I think so too. I, I would say without exaggeration, I want to ask your opinion on this. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I would say like without exaggeration that over 90% of the demo submissions I get are from white males. I know that there are like, I mean, that's, that's a low ball. That's a low ball. I know that there are systemic reasons for that, that go back pretty far. And, and I like to think that it's, it's perhaps getting better. But what advice would you give a label that is looking to have a more diverse roster in an industry that's still very male dominated? Um, well, I certainly think that there's a whole new wave, a whole new crop of artists that are coming up that are not white, straight and male. Um, and so much of them are still, so many of them are still waiting to kind of be picked up. I think in the last like three or four years, you've seen a lot of bigger labels diversify their rosters, right? Both in terms of sound and gender and sexuality and race and all those things. Um, and so I would like say to other labels, like keep digging deeper. Like there's yeah. plenty of interesting non-white male artists that are out there that are that are making really exciting music. It's kind of about like you need to like take a look at the spaces that you frequent and, Mm. and maybe change that up. Like what's, what's your regular venue? Like find a different venue. Like, uh, even the spaces that the spaces that you're frequenting online, like Mm. change up who you're following, like change your feed up, like try to, uh, (laughs) follow more, non-white music writers right. like try to <laughs> so diversify simple. the other 
things, the other, try to diversify your resources, I guess is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I think there's still a lot of people who rely on a couple of resources that have maybe always centered a certain kind of artist. And if you just broaden that out and, and follow, you know, blogs that are dedicated to, to covering only women and non-binary folks or, mm. or blogs that are, yeah, coming from a POC perspective, mm. um, and, you know, going to shows that are booked by, uh, folks who are not white and male and that are, uh, centering folks who are in marginalized groups. Um, that's how you're going to come across, uh, you know, more, more interesting artists who are not just in the, you know, the white male straight category. Um, and also diversify your staff. Like that's how like hire black people, hire people of color, hire queer people. Like if your roster looks a certain way, then it's probably because your, your staff is also reflecting that. And if you had one non-white person on staff, they might bring some insight to the label that you or your other staff members did not have before. And Mm. so the staff part of it is actually like what I would really say. It's like, you need to, you need to, the the effort that people are putting into diversifying their artist rosters also needs to happen with the, the the staff as well. Sure. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I mean, that goes back to that echo chamber type of, uh, thought process that we've been talking about a lot in the, in the past couple of years. And, and, I just love that is finding a different venue and, and different blogs, uh, you know, and I'm so guilty of that. Just going back, doing the same old thing, expecting different results. I think that's right. very wise. Yeah. What, what do you look for, uh, in an artist? I mean, you must have a mental checklist when you're doing those, uh, band camp deep dives. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, of course, one, it's like, you got to have really good music. You got to have a good song. Um, I'm looking for, uh, an interesting story or narrative. So I want to know, um, where, where the artist is from, um, what scene or community are they in? Who are their other artist friends? Mm. Um, what's their family background? Mm. What are their beliefs about the world to me all that context is really important in figuring out what artists i want to work with um i'm i'm looking for certain visual cues i'm looking for interesting album artwork i'm looking for uh the way even the way that your band camp is set up and the presentation of that Mm. is a is for me a huge draw it's kind of things that are like not necessarily like um not always musical necessarily. Sure. It's like a, a nice clean Bandcamp page where it's a short bio where I learn a little bit about the artist and everything's laid out nice and neat and it's got interesting colors and vibes or or it matches whatever aesthetic the music is. Uh, what does to that me, tell you? Huge draw. What does that tell you about the artist when you see something that, like that? That they've put thought into it. That mm. they've that they've they've thought about more than just the music. I think I think there's a an an attitude from there's an attitude in indie music that I think is more like pre 2010 that was kind of like yo it's like just about the music and yeah, like yeah. kind of just like this modest guy I just like throw a thing up there and see what happens and that's also cool and valuable but when i see an artist taking time to 
really make sure their website looks nice and their band campers pre- presented well and everything's like tight and neat. It just shows that they like really care about it and they care about the way that it's being perceived. And it's not just this thing that they're just, they're just throwing up there into the world without any care at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it shows that they like, cause t- to me, it's like, it's fine if you want to just like put up an album on Bandcamp and you're just doing things for fun. But I'm looking for artists who are who are trying to do this full time, sure. you know. And so, the way that things are presented shows to me that okay, they can like actually, they maybe are able to not just do the artist part because like being an artist, being an artist on a label, trying to do it full time means a lot more than just writing your songs and putting them up yeah. on Bandcamp. There's a lot of admin work. There's a lot of you know other things you're going to have to do that are just like kind of, you know, general business things. And so that gives me some kind of hint that they're ready to like take on some of those things as well. So when we're talking, when you're talking about artwork and, and, and the non-musical side of things, I want to ask you about image and, and what role that plays. And I mean, obviously it's ridiculous that we, we, the, the, the sex appeal of the eighties and nineties is not a thing at all. (laughs) And hopefully in indie, indie music, but there is still, uh, a, a, an image or an aesthetic that the artist portrays. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think image and aesthetic are are valuable. I think it, I think it depends on the artist and the genre that they're in and how they're choosing to go about it. To some artists, the visuals and the image and the way things are presented aesthetically are going to be very central to the work. Um, mm. And and in that case, it might be someone who's just like a little bit more theatrical or has uh, other things that they want to offer besides the, the, the musical expression. Um, right. And I think that's fine. And I think that's great. And, I, and at Father Daughter, we have a range of artists who, uh, you know, uh, prioritize visuals in different ways. Mm. Um, for example, we have this artist that, really took off this year uh her name is her artist name is sir baby girl uh and she's this like very outgoing very comedic uh queer pop uh artist and the the comedy aspect and the visuals and her engaging with the audience and her kind of being sort of like a clown on stage is very central to Mm. the project Whereas for someone like Esther Rose, uh, it's a little bit more restrained and it's like maybe more about the music and like more about the actual record. And like both those things can coexist on the same label and, uh, can kind of learn from each other and, and, and that's fine. And so, yeah, I think image and, and visuals and aesthetic can, can be great. I, I don't think it has to be central to the project, but if you're someone who wants to, prioritize that and make it an extension of the work, then I think go for it. And I think even the people who are trying to have like a modest sort of take on it, uh, that's its own style of presentation. (laughs) Yeah. That's (laughs) right. No image is an image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Oh, that's cool. This has been a lot of fun to chat with you and there's a lot of uh, eye opening things for me. Um, and I, and I want to kind of take some time later and break it out. And I, and I, I, uh, I appreciate this so much. This is really great opportunity for our listeners and for myself to stop for a second and talk about this field. Um, I think this is great. 
Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. I, I've been following the podcast since like day one, and it's oh. there's it's so nice to have a podcast that puts the light on record labels, and it's so cool to hear from different labels that I follow and I'm, that I'm a fan of. And I just really appreciate that you are creating a space for this conversation to even happen. So, oh, so thank awesome. you so much. That's great. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about. Um, your, your availability to some of our listeners. I, I, I don't know, like, you know, what your role is. I know that you offer some services, uh, to, to people. And, and I, I mean, we have listeners who are, who are just, uh, artists and they're not part of a label. There, there are people who are at labels or, or, or various different things. Um, what, what type of things do you offer to the general public? Yeah, so this year I've like recently been I've been doing these these consulting sessions mm. uh, where I invite artists or people who are interested in working in music to come talk to me for an hour. I do like a sliding scale fee to try to make it uh, accessible for a lot of different people, cool. and we kind of just talk for an hour about you know what your goals are, questions you might have about the music industry. I'm trying to offer the services to kind of demystify uh, uh, how things in the music industry work and make this information more available to different people. Um, and it it's kind of a lot of people have said it feels like therapy because <laughs> um, we really just like get into it and yeah, people yeah. talk about their emotions. And so I kind of have been jokingly calling it like music industry therapy. And it's, it's actually like there's, there's not enough services I think that allow you to like really get into this kind of stuff with somebody. Uh, Cause when you're on the outside, it can just seem so daunting and it can seem so closed off. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to open it up a bit. Um, so yeah, if your listeners want to hit me up, my, my email is flash taggy F L A S H T A G G Y at gmail.com. And you can email me there and we can work out a time and, uh yeah, I'd be happy to That's talk awesome. to you. That's awesome. And your I think your Twitter is the same, right? It's uh, at flash taggy blog. So uh, yeah. same as the email, but add blog on there. Um never got around to changing my initial blog name handle. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm forever just known as the flash tag kid on the internet. But well, this has been great. I really I love the idea um uh, that you know and I'm glad we we connected over Twitter because I I love the idea of about talking about this topic and, and taking it seriously other than just this weird little acronym that we we use every now and then. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Thank you so much to everyone listening. Um, I hope you got a lot from this episode and I hope you enjoy these industry insiders. It's nice for me to kind of come at the concept and the topic of record labels from a different angle. Um, and we have a few more of these coming up in the future, including um, as well as uh, some incredible record label interviews to come. To uh, get in touch with Tyler, if you're interested in doing that, you can just follow him on Twitter. His his handle is Flash taggy blog that's f-l-a-s-h-t-a-g-g-y-b-l-o-g um, and follow him over there and and his email and all that information can be found over there as well as um, father daughter records you know them um, and and make sure you go back and listen to that episode they're they're on twitter as well as father father at uh sorry father underscore daughter 
um, records and, and to, to, to hear some of the work that Tyler's done with them. Thanks so much for listening. Um, like I said at the beginning, I, there's so much incredible information and, and I try to, to uh, from, from, our, from our, our guests, and I try to distill a lot of this in that free guide, which you can get at otherrecordlabels.com. And I'll also be doing a follow-up episode with Tyler's next week um, to, t- to, to pull out some of the takeaways from, from this episode so that we don't forget it. Thanks for listening.